long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Disaster Queen podcast. This is our first ever part two of a disaster. So we have one so big, we couldn't contain it all in one episode. So if you didn't listen to last week's episode, stop right now and go back, or none of this is going to make sense to you, including my special guest. Because once again, my friend Becky Dell is back with me to finish this disaster with me. She was not going to abandon me in the middle. Thank you for coming back, Becky. Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. Ooh, good. Anytime. I'm going to take you up on that. So we left um, the story of Jim Jones and Jonestown in San Francisco, California. And we hadn't even talked about Jonestown yet. But jo- So we're in 1977 when we left the story. But actually, Jonestown starts in 1974. So let me backtrack a little bit, Becky, to we talked about before. Jones in the 60s even was planning on moving his congregation out of the United States or at least away from where it started, cutting people off kind of from their friends and family and really just having the people's temple all be together and cut off from everyone else. So he's really trying to isolate. So even though they have great success in San Francisco, he has not given up the dream of isolating his people completely. And so He still is looking for a location to ultimately move the church to. And what he settles on is 3,800 acres of jungle in Guyana. Guyana is an African country. Um, It was socialist at the time, which was part of the allure to him because he was definitely an avowed socialist and communist. Um, And... The Guyanese government thought it would be great to lease land to a bunch of Americans. I mean, that's a great advertisement for your country if a bunch of Americans want to come live in your jungle, right? So so in 1974, they leased this huge uh, piece of jungle. But how do you turn jungle into a habitable space? There's the question. It's a big Free one. Labor. That's yeah. what I'm guessing. Free labor. That's exactly it. So um, the next year, Jones started sending people down to start building the colony, the settlement. I don't know if they called it a settlement. I think they called it a settlement. Um, And these people um, cleared the land by hand. They built cabins. His ultimate plan, Jones' actual ultimate plan, was to build a site for only about 500 people. I'm not sure why he wasn't planning on having... Well, okay, here's what I am sure. He wanted to have you know, a colony there. Um, They were going to make it a socialist, like utopian society where they grew all their own food. They were totally independent. They took care of each other, but he needed people back in San Francisco still to make money (laughs) for the church because ain't ain't nobody paying them to farm the jungle out in Guyana. So originally Jonestown was planned for just about 500 people. Um, They would have 
people go over there and live over there in shifts to build, to clear all the land. I mean, clearing jungle, I cannot even imagine. We're talking about chopping huge trees, brush, there's animals. I mean, it's crazy how much work they had to do. But from all reports, the people that went there to build Jonestown really enjoyed the work and were happy to be there. Some people were sent there as punishment, especially like unruly, like older teenagers um, and young people. But um, a lot of people just did want to go and want to be there. And when you hear in the documentaries, there's a really good documentary. I'll put all this in the show notes called Jonestown Terror in the Jungle. There are several survivors that are interviewed in that that talk about how Jonestown was great for a while. They enjoyed building it. They were proud of what they had built. Um, But come to find out, this is when there's a very small number of people living there. So while it was being built, there was only about 60 to 100 people living there. They built cabins. They built, they had communal latrines. Yuck. They had communal showers. They had, they had a big kitchen. They had a big pavilion. So they had cottages where you could live in, but like nobody needed their own kitchen because they all took all their meals together, stuff like that. So this is all going on and being built while at the end of 1976, 1977, back in San Francisco, there are some people leaving the church and Jones is getting really upset about that. So at the same time as people were leaving um, the people's temple at the end of 77, 76, Jones starts to get into some legal troubles. And this is caused by our friend Grace Stone, who finally is sick of not being able to have her child and files both for divorce from Tim Stone and for custody of John Victor Stone, her son, with Jim Jones um, that we mentioned in the episode one. So this kind of is a big deal because Tim Stone is kind of a high profile lower lawyer. And at the same time, she's finding other defectors who want their children back from the communal living. So they're kind of all banding together. There are even some people whose parents have allowed their kids to go to Jonestown and want them back. So they have people in wow. Guyana. Yeah. Grace so, is tough, man. Grace I know. Is brave. Grace is very brave. And she's Grace interviewed Mark. in this. Um, no, you, you interject whenever you want. She's interviewed in the Jonestown um, Terror in the Jungle documentary extensively. And whew, I mean, she is, I don't know how she's still standing, but she's amazing. Um, also, Elmer and Deanna Myrtle, the couple we mentioned in episode one who had changed their names, they mm-hmm. started going to authorities to try and get um, Jim Jones uh, investigated for the financial fraud, you know, for taking everyone's money, for taking all the social security checks from all their elderly people, from misusing state funds for the foster care homes. So they were really working against him as well. And they weren't getting a lot of um, help from the officials because, again, as I said, Tim Stone, his lawyer, was in the district attorney's office. However, they did start getting some interest from reporters, the press. This whole time that Jones has been in San Francisco, he's also been very friendly with the press and very good at getting himself good press. Mm. He does not know how to handle bad press. And so he starts handling it by trying to get it shut down. He has his um, uh, congregation, thousands of people now sending letters, inundating like, news outlets with phone calls and letters about how wonderful Jim Jones is and how they need to stop the lies. He gets several stories killed. 
As a matter of fact, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, Marshall Kilduff, was talking with the Myrtles and had this story about this fraud, and his um, newspaper editor, editor of the Chronicle would not uh, greenlight it. But he found someone that would. His, his bosses at the Chronicle did allow him to freelance. He freelanced for a magazine called New West. And though Jones knew about the story and he immediately started planning retaliation, but at the same time he was downplaying it. He was like, oh, New West magazine. That's not a big deal. It's just a monthly magazine. It's not a major news outlet. So he was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth, trying to get the story killed, but also kind of reassuring people it's not going to be a big deal. But um, it kind of was a big deal. So he started actually, this is 1977, accelerating the pace of members being sent to Jonestown. Mm-hmm. Um, and you went, when he told you you were going, you were gone. Like he was like, you're going to Jonestown tomorrow. They would get on a plane to New York, get a plane from New York. There was one plane from New York a day that went to Georgetown, Guyana. Wow. So he had people from the temple living in New York. And their only job was to facilitate their fellow people's temple members getting to Guyana. So it was very well orchestrated. It's crazy. And they had so much money because again, they'd been taking in money from all of their thousands of members for years now. So they could pay for these flights. Um, It's wild. So he began accelerating the, the, the members move to Jonestown because he knew about this article. Um, He also began preaching a lot about reincarnation so interesting and he he would talk about suicide a lot he said he was opposed to it but then he'd be like it's not good it's selfish but you know when you die it's just like you're just stepping over to another life like so he was kind of planting seeds right at that time in the late 70s still in san francisco preaching a lot about reincarnation and what happens when you step over into the next life and at the same time sending tons of people to guyana jones himself wasn't planning on moving for a while, but um, in early June, the uh, people who were right, working on the article, Marshall Kilduff, his editors for New West Magazine, called Jones and read the article to him over the phone, wanting Whoa. a response from Jones. Jones would not give an official comment other than that, you know, it's all lies. Um, it, can, it included allegations of financial fraud state funds being misused for foster kids, physical abuse, and harassment of defectors. And his response was, I'm going to Guyana tonight. He, like, hung up that phone (laughs) after talking to the New West reporters, and he got himself ready to go. So he and his main, um, I want to call them lieutenants, his main, like, inner circle, took off the next day for Guyana. Marcelin Jones, his wife, stayed behind to run things in San Francisco, but he took with him some of his main uh, mistresses, including mm-hmm. Carolyn Layton and a young woman named Maria Katsaris. Also, Carolyn Layton's sister, Annie Moore, was his main nurse. She went with him. There's a documentary called The Women of Jonestown, and it talks about these three ladies as well as Marcelin Jones. And I honestly see Marcelin as a tragic figure in this whole thing. I don't really have any blame for her, but they do include her in the, among that group, and I'm like, I don't know, but it's an interesting watch. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but Carolyn Layton and Maria Katsaris and Annie Moore would do anything for him, anything and everything. Um, and so he, um, 
he and those ladies and a few others packed up and literally went to Jonestown, Guyana the next day. I cannot imagine. Yeah. The article was not coming out for a couple more months, but he originally said he would return when it blew over, but he never came back. Mm -hmm. Um, so the article did eventually come out and it was a huge, um, you know, scandal, but at the same time, Jim Jones wasn't around to answer for it. And his, his, uh, disciples that were still in San Francisco were just like, it's all lies. It's all lies. He's wonderful singing his praises. And they were willing to give plenty interviews about how terrible the article was and how it was all lies. So although it did drive him to Guyana, it didn't necessarily hurt the people's temple in San Francisco that were still there, but that's what got him to go. And so now we're going to, we're going to move, we are going to move with him to Jonestown, Guyana. And like I said, there was about 60 to 100 people there before 1977. And then he started really moving people quickly. When you hear the um, survivors talking in documentaries, they say, you know, Jonestown was a pretty happy place before Jim Jones got there. Hmm. They were in enjoying their work, living communally. Um, there was enough food to go around because there was only about, you know, 100 or 200 of them. Um, it's really hard to grow stuff in the jungle. Okay. I yeah. mean, I've never done it, but it's hard to grow crops in the jungle. And apparently they were just, you know, able to grow enough to feed themselves, but they still had to import a lot of things. And as the population grew, um, it got really hard to feed everyone. Also, they had a housing problem because they had originally only built enough houses for 500 people. And after Jones flees, he starts importing people even quicker and so pretty soon there's about a thousand people living in Jonestown by 1978. Yeah. Um, so the main reason for this is that he was not content with a small crowd to lead his megalomania, his narcissism. He needed a big old audience to command every day. And he did, he would gather them in the pavilion at the Jonestown, um, settlement every day and do sermons and preaching and he wanted a big crowd. So he, he started having followers come over like crazy. Um, and again, and got to about a thousand people. He, he took control over everything once he got there. So he started giving himself personally, all the work assignments to people. You know where you're supposed to be when, because Jim Jones said so. So the people were kind of running their own lives before he got there. Ooh, I'm losing my voice here. <laughs> Preaching about Jim Jones. But, um, once he got there, they were back under his, his, um, his thumb and literally like at his beck and call and they slept when he said sleep, they ate when he said eat and it just wasn't as much fun anymore as it had been. It's such an undertaking to micromanage a thousand people all while you're plotting and scheming and, you know, doing all the things that a, a narcissistic leader needs to do in a day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, taking your drugs, taking um, your psychedelics. He, he did have his, his ladies, his lieutenants help him. Um, and, and this is so weird to me, but Carolyn Layton, his mistress, her ex-husband, Larry was still one of Jones's like top lieutenants, even though he took his wife and guess what? He also slept with Larry's second wife that he got for him. She became one of Larry. his mistresses too. And Larry was just like, it's cool, Jim. I'll follow you wherever, whatever you want, bro. It's good. Like, I can't imagine the mind control that would facilitate that. It's nuts. Wow. Um, 
And speaking of romantic relationships, in Jonestown, people had to apply for permission to have a romantic relationship. They had to apply for permission to break up or to get married. <laughs> wow. I know. Can I break up now, Jim? I don't want to date him anymore. Mm, I don't know. Let me think about it. Right. Um, if he wanted you together, you were together. Uh, mail was heavily censored. Coming Incoming mail from concerned relatives in the United States and outgoing mail was heavily censored. There was nothing that went out that Jim Jones or his lieutenants didn't read. They were carefully controlling the message and the news that their people could receive or send. Um, Jones also had a doctor. Another thing people's temple would do would they would send people to college to learn what they wanted them to learn, pay for it and everything. And then those people owed them their education. So Jones mm -hmm. had a doctor in the, in Jonestown that he had totally, um, financed his entire education. And so this was the guy that got him all his drugs oh and gosh. ostensibly provided medical care for the citizens of Jonestown as well. Um, but he had, that guy was able to order anything Jones wanted into, you know, it was all prescription drugs into Jonestown. Jones also had a fancy cabin. Like everyone else lived in like hot little, you know, cottages with no air conditioning and whatever. But Jones had like a special bathroom. He had a window air conditioner or whatever. Oh my um, gosh. He had, yeah, he had a nice soft bed instead of bunks. Um, he had a nicer place. And um, he also had John Victor Stone with him. So let's yeah. His son by Grace Stone. Um, Tim Stone was in Guyana for a while with Jones. Tim Stone, spoiler alert, eventually after he was in Jonestown, he went back to San Francisco and left the church. So he now his son, his legal son and Grace's wow. son is still in uh custody of Jim Jones in Guyana. And this is something that will really kind of unravel things, which we'll talk about more in a bit. Um Another way Jones controlled his people was as soon as you got to Jonestown, you gave up your passport. So once you were there, you were not there. Jones had your passport and you weren't leaving without his permission. Um, and again, because so many people came at once, they didn't, they weren't prepared. They didn't have enough food, enough crops to feed people. Rice became pretty much your every meal and people started to be, to be hungry. Um, and they were working all hours you know, hard work in the jungle. So they needed more calories to subsist right. off of and they just weren't getting it. So now they're very hungry. They're very tired and they're very isolated and he's got them right where he wants them. So where he wants them is also very afraid. And he began translating his or spreading his paranoia to um, the people in Jonestown. And he began telling them that, um, they, people weren't going to let them live the way they wanted to and that they need to be prepared for attack at all times. Um, the reason he started this was because Tim Stone joined forces with his wife, Grace. They did eventually divorce, but they joined forces to try to get custody of John Victor Stone back. Hmm. Part of the reason they did this or part of the way they did this was they um, started a group of temple defectors and people's whose um, loved ones were in Jonestown that weren't part of the, the temple called the concerned relatives. That was literally the official name of the book, the group concerned relatives. Um, so they started um, advocating the courts and the Congress, their local Congress people to help them to um, get news about Jonestown. So 
at one point, John Victor Stone's custody was um, um, awarded to his parents, Grace and Tim, his legal parents. And Guyanese were ordered to arrest Jim Jones. This started a crazy six days in Jonestown called the Six Day Siege. What Jim Jones did was he told his people, they're coming to arrest me. We have to prepare. He had his people with weapons all ready for a big fight for six days. Wow. Constantly on alert. And he told them that if they come in here, you know, they're going to kill us all. And this is also when he started planting more things about suicide was they're going to kill us all if they won't let us live. So we're going to fight to the death, he would say. If they won't let us live the way we want to, then we're going to die the way we want to. Eventually, Jones was able, through some kind of diplomacy, he had People's Temple lawyers in the capital of Guyana, Georgetown. Wow. He was able to get the Guyanese to um, basically say they weren't going to arrest him. They weren't going to enforce the American court's order. So that ended the six-day siege, and it also kept John Victor Stone in the custody of Jim Jones. He was about six years old at this time. Um, but the Stones didn't stop. They were lobbying, like I said, their local congressman. And the one of the local congressmen, the, he, was a, he was the representative for San Francisco area. He was in Washington. His name was Leo Ryan. Um, he he um, began to kind of take up the cause of the concerned relatives and he um, really supported the stones in their bid to get custody of John Victor. Leo was also not a um, Leo Ryan was not publicity shy. And so he um, had done, you know, some things in the past where he had been like very upfront about meeting his constituents needs. And he kind of took on the, the, concerns of the concerned relatives very seriously and he even wrote a letter um, on the stone's behalf to the Guyanese prime minister to try and move that needle and get John Victor returned but it didn't work um, I'll talk about more about Leo in a second because he has a big role in the ending of Jonestown so now we're in early 1978 well actually mid 1978 there's another big defector her name is Deborah Layton she's Larry Layton's sister she was a longtime People's Temple member, um, and she was in Jonestown, but Jones trusted her to do temple business, and he sent her all over the world. One thing she did was she took money for him, huge suitcases full of money, and put them in foreign banks. Again, financial oh. fraud. Jim Jones had millions of dollars in foreign banks all around the world, and his people in Jonestown were starving. That is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. He wasn't Mind starving. I was going to ask, like, he probably had all the food he wanted in his yeah. little palace in he the Um, But anyway, he sent Deborah Layton, you know, to deposit money all over the world. On one of these trips, because she was his trusted emissary, she was able to get out um, and not just not come back. And wow. yeah, so she was very brave. She went to... Uh, I think the American embassy in Jonestown and was like, please get me out of here. So she um, filed an affidavit, an official affidavit that detailed the, some of the abuses in Jonestown. She said they were being deliberately undernourished. Mm -hmm. um, a quote from this affidavit says there was rice for breakfast, rice, water, soup for lunch and rice and beans for dinner. On Sunday, we each received an egg and a cookie two or three times a week. We had vegetables some very weak elderly members received one egg per day. 
Wow. I should mention there was a lot of elderly people in Jonestown of about the thousand people. About a third were elderly and about a third were children. So a lot of the people doing this really hard work, you know, for everyone, I mean, there was only about a third of the people doing the really hard work in Jonestown. Um, and But everyone was suffering. Um, so Debbie Layton's affidavit made a big um, splash with the concerned relatives, with Congressman Leo Ryan, with people who were really trying to um, make sure that the people there were okay. So that wasn't great. That made Jones real mad. And of course, his paranoia just increased with this more bad press he was getting. He was really fearful of a government raid on the commune. And so he again began um, preparing them to resist attack. He began holding drills to test their readiness. And he would call these drills white knights. I'm putting that in quotations. He would get over the um, loudspeaker in the community and yell, alert, alert, alert. The siren would go off and everyone would have to run to the pavilion. He would do this at all hours of the night. Um, people would be up all night and um, he would prepare them for attack. He would tell them it was imminent. And then eventually he would, after they were totally exhausted and in, in fear for hours, he would be like, just kidding. This was just a drill. So mm. <laughs> um, he constantly told them they were surrounded by government agents from the U.S. that were trying to destroy them. He would have them do chants and prayers to avoid attack. Um, sometimes he would have his guards hide in the forest and shoot to simulate an attack to, like, you know, scare the people into thinking an attack was happening right now. And then he would only tell them it was a drill when it was over. I feel like um, that's the same technique he did with planting people in the audience for healings. Yeah, and very similar. Services. It's the same method, just a different way. He was very good at using deception in a variety of ways. And he already had these people under his total control. I mean, they willingly followed him to the jungle, you know? So, um, anyway, they were also now like starving, fearful, fearful of trying to leave because they were told enemies were surrounding. Um, but during this time, also, people would come from the U.S. Embassy to check on Jonestown whenever they had a visit. Everything would be super great. They would, you know, clean up, you know, clean it up. They would get enough food in to have them observe them eating a decent meal, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when Congress Leo, Leo Ryan, Congressman Leo Ryan is trying to talk to the embassy, the embassy's like, look, every time we go out there, it's fine. Like, maybe you should just drop this. Um, but he didn't drop it. <laughs> so one of these drills, I will say, a white knight, as they called it, he did tell them that they were all going to die that night. And he gave them um, fruit punch and he told that they were all going to die in like 45 minutes after they drank the punch and then after 45 minutes he was like just kidding it's just a drill there was no poison so this is kind of a dress rehearsal for what actually happens and this is an early 1978 so he's he's this plan for you know taking all his taking the lives of all his followers was not like something he came up with on November 18th, 1978, like he, he had plans and he kind of always had this like contingency plan at the ready. So a couple times at these white knights, they even had votes on, do we want to commit revolutionary suicide? I'm using that in quotes too. Um, that's what he called it. Um, and, um, 
Debbie Layton also described one of these in her, um, her affidavit. So I'm going to quote from her affidavit. She said, everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. So he's not just like planting it in their minds. He's having them literally practice it. What the a mind games. Evil, evil man. Yes. Evil total, man. total mind games. So this is a situation these people are in as we're getting into late 1978. They're starving. They're tired. They're, they're constantly afraid. Um, and just in case they were starting to doubt their leader, also around this time, he started to tell them that he had lung cancer in an effort to gain their sympathy. So it's a kind of like excuse for his poor health or why he was not appearing on top of his game because he was on so much Valium and Quaaludes and stuff was, oh, he has lung cancer, you know, so now like, oh, if they were thinking like, I want to get away from this guy, then now they're all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to feel sorry for him again. So he did that too. He did not have lung cancer. Um, he wasn't in great health because his drug abuse was really like putting him in some bad health, but mm -hmm. he was, you know, he did not have cancer and he was still perfectly, he was still perfectly well enough to manipulate and control his followers. So I don't feel sorry for you, Jim Jones. Mm -mm. All right. So now we're getting down to the end. Um, we're in November 1978. Tim and Grace Stone are still fighting for custody of their son. Jim is very afraid that John Victor is going to get taken away from him. And he's also got to deal with Congressman Leo Ryan and the concerned relatives who have now decided that they are going to come to Guyana. In November 1978, Ryan announces he's going to lead a fact-finding mission to Jonestown to investigate the allegations of human rights abuses, of starvation, of forced labor, etc. He um, does have some of the concerned relatives come with him, even though they're not officially part of his congressional investigation. Also, he's got tons of media. He's got NBC camera crew and reporters for several newspapers. They get to Guyana on November 15th, but they've got to get permission from Jones to visit. It's private property. There's no... Um, there's no right. Leo, Ryan, and his delegation have no rights to visit. They're just hoping that Jones will let them in. So after a couple of days of negotiations, Jones agrees to let them in on November 17th. And that was a Friday. Um, he hosted a reception for them. And they had obviously cleaned up the compound. Everyone was wearing their best clothes. Everyone ate a big meal with meat and green beans and bread. And they had like a program of singing and dancing after dinner. And Ryan even um, spoke to them. And he said, you know, no matter what people are saying, you know, everybody I've talked to today seems to think that Jonestown is the best thing that ever happened to them. And the crowd erupts in crazy cheers. And again, this is all on tape. You can watch it in the documentaries. It's maniacal, maniacal cheers to the point where he eventually just sits down because they're going to go on cheering for so long that he knows he's just not going to be able to speak again. Like it's minutes long cheers. It's weird and creepy. And right. yeah, it's crazy. Um, but meanwhile, while he's there, they're taking a tour. He has interviewed many, many 
settlers and they're all saying it's the most wonderful. I would never want to leave. We're so welcome take taken care of. We love father. They call Jim Jones father. I've never mentioned that. Super creepy. Um, mm-hmm. all, at this time, all of Jim Jones' children, uh, and, except for his daughter, Suzanne, who had left the church, and Marceline are, are there, too, in Jonestown. So his whole family is there. Um, his son, Kimo, with Carolyn Layton's there. His son, John Victor Stone, uh, with Grace Stone, is there. Um, and um, so he's got everyone where he wants them. And he's very disturbed by these interviews and the visit. So even though he allows the visit, he's visibly uncomfortable and upset the whole time they're there. Um, but everyone's saying this is the most wonderful place. We would never leave. Well, um, that lasted until late in the evening on November 17th, when one member of the people's temple named Vernon Gosney passed a note to an NBC cameraman, Don Harris or mm-hmm. reporter, Don Harris. And the note said Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, was one of his friends help us get out he dropped the note when he was passing it and there was a child nearby and they were all like told to report on each other of course so the child's like he passed a note he passed a note so then gosney hands it to him and he says i think you dropped this so um the nbc guy gave it to leo ryan leo ryan talks to vernon gosney and bagby um the next he says okay i'll help you get out this is what's so bonkers becky there's no the congressman and the camera crews, the reporters, everybody spends the night in Jonestown. Like, they go to sleep in that place. Yes. No. No way. No. The, the people who like the Guyanese, like they just had to get like a, a ride out to Jonestown, which was like, first they had to fly into a little airstrip called Port Kaituma and give it a ride from there to Jonestown. Jonestown was like an hour and a half or 190 miles from Georgetown or something. It was a long ride. So they had to fly in, but the, the guy just dropped him off at Jonestown and then left the local driver. So they didn't have, they were going to have to like radio They're back. Stuck. They had, they had like yeah. CB radios. They were going to have to radio back to get it right. So they spent the night. Uh, <laughs> no, thanks. Nope. Um, no, thanks. The next morning, Ryan goes to Jim Jones and says, you know, I've got these people who want to leave, but Vernon Gosney had a son living in communal living at Jonestown and he had agreed to leave his son there. Like, which I'm not judging him. Right. I, I don't know, you know, he probably knew that he would never be able, you know, he was hoping he could get the law involved and get him back later. I don't know. But yeah. Jim Jones says to Leo Ryan, well, if it's so terrible, why does he want to leave his son here? And Leo's like, I don't know, but if he wants to leave, I'm going to take him out. Eventually, some more people decide they want to leave. They end up mm-hmm. with about 15 people who want to leave. And Jones is trying to talk him out of it. It gets very tense. Um, Leo Ryan says, you know what, I'm going to stay one more. We're going to get these people out. He's, he has a congressional aide named Jackie Spear with him. She's now a congresswoman. He has her go, you know, we're going to get these people out and I'm going to come tomorrow. I'm going to stay another night because I want to see if anyone else wants to leave. Just then, a guy comes up behind Leo Ryan, jumps on his back and says, you're going to die, expletive deleted, and tries to stab him with a knife. Some other guys from the temple run and grab the guy and get him off of Leo Ryan. And Leo Ryan's like, okay, you know what? I am going to leave now. I'm going to go ahead and go now. Right. Goes and he gets in the trucks that are ready to take him, his crew, the camera crews, and the about 15 or so Jonestown defectors. And um, just as they're getting ready to leave, Larry Layton, one of Jones's top lieutenants, jumps in the truck and says, I want to leave too. And everybody's like, no, no, no. He doesn't want to leave. Do not let him come with us. And so Jones talks it over with him. I'm not, not Jones. 
Leo Ryan talks it over with Leighton. Leighton, you know, says, I want to leave. You said whoever wanted to leave could leave. I want to leave. So he lets them stay. And they take off for the Port Kaituma airstrip. So they can have a couple, they have two planes waiting to get these people to Georgetown and then back to the United States. Okay. So they take off to the Port Kaituma airstrip. They've got two planes waiting for them. Um, while, when they get there, Jackie Spear, the congressional aide, starts getting people on planes. There's um, obviously press. So the press say, hey, Congresswoman Leo Ryan, can we do a quick interview with you um, before you get on the plane? He says, sure. So they start interviewing. And as you can see, he's, ta he's talking. And then you can see in the background of the interview, like, some um, uh, tra tractors, like a tractor pulls up. And there's all these men on it. And then all of a sudden... You see, you hear gunshots and the camera goes, camera like falls over and it's like, you know, the yeah. fuzz. So a group of people from Jonestown had followed on Jones's orders, had followed the group to the airstrip. Jones decided he wasn't going to let them leave. And he particularly ordered that they kill the congressman. The man who had tried to kill the congressman in Jonestown was doing that on Jones's orders. Um, if that didn't work, Larry Layton was supposed to shoot everybody on his plane so that the plane would just go down. And that's how Leo Ryan would be killed. So people from Jonestown start shooting at the congressman, shooting the cameramen, shooting the the uh, Jonestown defectors. Larry Layton is already on the plane. He starts shooting. He starts shooting at Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, who are on the plane with him. Eventually, they some some of the people flee into the jungle to avoid getting shot. But uh, there are many many people shot and there were five people who were killed um, on that airstrip. So the first casualties of Jonestown that day were Congressman Leo Ryan and NBC crew, um, Don Harris um, and Bob Brown, um, San Francisco examiner reporter, Greg Robinson and one temple defector, Patricia Parks, um, whose children and husband were there with her when she was shot and they all escaped into the jungle. Um, but many more, more were shot, including Jackie Spear, the congressional aide who is now a congressman. Um, um, one of the guys from the U.S. Uh, embassy in Georgetown was shot. guess he doesn't feel so good about his pleasant visits now. Bob Flick, right. an NBC producer. Steve Sung, an NBC sound engineer. And uh, Tim Reiterman, a San Francisco examiner reporter. Ron Javers, a Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle reporter. And Charles Krauss, a... Washington Post reporter, and also several mem members of the temple who were defecting were shot, but Patricia Parks was the only one who was killed. So um, back at Jonestown, Jones knows as a jig is up. He knows he's ordered the murder of a congressman, and he knows that, um, that you know, he's going to be taken into custody at the very least. He knows that Jonestown is over, that his reign is over. And so he has his lieutenants, Maria Katsaris, Carolyn Layton, um, Annie Moore, and the doctor, I forget the doctor's name, start preparing a drink, Flavor-Aid, a Kool-Aid knockoff, laced with cyanide and tranquilizers. And he is, calls all his people to the pavilion. He tells them what happened. He tells them, the congressman is dead. They're not going to let us live this way anymore. And it's time for us to commit revolutionary su suicide to protest the world that we live in because they won't let us live the way we want to live. Only one temple member you can hear on the tape because, of course, it's all recorded. 
Right, all of it. It's now called the death tape. That's what they call it. Um, one temple member, her name's Christine Miller, starts to kind of argue and say, I want the children to survive. You know, can we go to Russia? She's like trying to come up and Jones just rejects every, you know, and then the people start shouting her down. Like they, the people are shouting her down. They're like, quit talking, quit arguing with father. Like they're just ready to do whatever he says. Um, and so it begins first. He says, I want the children to come first. So he has the parents take their children in their arms or the caregivers um, so you can say this, so people say, some people say Jonestown was a mass suicide. I think it was a mass murder. Mm-hmm. I think all of these people, whether they took the poison willingly or not, were under mind control. But these children, there was about 300 children that were absolutely murdered. Absolutely. 100%. They were, they were, um, they just put the poison flavor aid into their mouths with syringes. And then most of their parents or caregivers chose to die along with them and to go ahead and take it at that time as well. And it's not a pleasant, you know, Jones was telling me it'll be quick. It'll be fast. It'll be easy. And it wasn't, I mean, unless you take, like if you bite on a cyanide capsule with tons of cyanide in it, it'll kill you instantly. If you've got diluted cyanide in a drink, it it suffocates you. It's not, it, it deprives your body of oxygen and it's not particularly quick. And so it was not a good way to die. So, so when the children started screaming, you can hear Maria Katsaris on the tape saying, they're just crying because it tastes bad. It tastes bitter. You know? It's unbelievable. I know. So you can hear it. So then he has, um, after the children, he has, you know, and if you've just watched your child die, like, of course you're going to take the poison. You know what I mean? Right. Like, <laughs> Right. So then he had the adults come and everyone began they had a huge vat you can hear him on the tape saying the vat the vat where's the vat a huge vat full of this flavor aid and people just dipped their cups in and, and took it and um they had armed guards keeping people from escaping people who did not want to take it who were fussing and putting up a fight got injected with it um there were many bodies they said that had abscesses on them from the injections and also wow. Marceline Jones, the whole time the children were being killed, was screaming, stop this, stop this, stop this. And you can hear Jones on the tape saying, mother, mother, be quiet, mother, be quiet. He had Marceline Jones restrained. He had his wife restrained. And she did die of the, I don't know if she was injected or or what, but she also was one of the victims. Um, so who knows? People may have thought at first it was another rehearsal like he'd made him do before, but soon people were dying and it was evident that this right. was this was over. There are a few survivors. There are a few that ran for the jungle. There's one elderly lady who completely slept through it. They That's crazy. It really? is crazy. They had people go into the elderly's bunkhouses because not all the elderly were able to come to the pavilion yeah. and give the elderly drink or inject them. And this woman was asleep and they thought she was already dead. Wow. Yeah. She woke up a few hours later and came out like, where is everybody? Oh, Can my. you imagine the horror? No. Oh, my gosh. I know. And there were a few that did escape into the jungle. And um, there were also those who were out, um, who were sent. There was a, two guys who were sent out. Three, I think, actually. Tim Carter was one who's, into, who's uh, interviewed extensively in the Jonestown Terror in the Jungle documentary. And he watched his wife and his child die. Jones had just, you know, had called him back to to take money. He said he had this huge case of money. He wanted him to take the Russian embassy. And then Carter says, I was just trying to buy time because he didn't want to die. He didn't want his wife and his child to die. And when he walks out of the offices with this um, 
suitcase, he sees that his wife and his child have already taken the poison. Ugh. Yeah. It's terrible. To hear him talk, it's awful. Um, He's just filled with so much pain. So he, you know, he and, and the two guys that Jones sent out with the suitcases of money just ended up walking off. They left the money in the jungle and they didn't, they were able to, you know, escape with their lives. But um, here's another crazy, crazy part. For, for whatever reason, like this makes no sense at all. Jonestown had a basketball team. What? Exactly. That's the reaction. Jonestown had a basketball team. Like, why the heck did they need a basketball team? Their basketball team, which included Jim Jones's sons, Tim, Stephen, and Jim Jones Jr., was at a basketball tournament in Georgetown when this occurred. Like, they competed with other teams. Yes. I don't I, even understand. Right? Where does that fit into any of this? So they're at, George, they're at the headquarters in Georgetown. Jim Jones Jr. talks about it in the documentary. He says, got a radio message from my dad, and he's, he's saying in code, He's what he's he told him in code. He said, we're, you know, we're going to kill ourselves. The congressman's dead. And Jim Jones Jr. says, Dad, we're not going to kill ourselves. I'm not doing that. Like, so he gets his brother and some other basketball teammates and they they try to go to the U.S. Embassy to, to, to wow. get somebody to fly them there to try and stop it. And the U.S. Embassy says, sorry, we're closed on Saturdays. There's nobody here who can help you. No. Yes. Oh, I am not joking you, Becky. It would have been too late anyway. But they wouldn't even try like this. Whoever the guard on duty was like, sorry, we're closed. We're not helping anyone on Saturdays. Can you I believe cannot. that? I cannot believe that. So Jim Jones Jr. and Stephen Jones go back to the house in Georgetown, the Temple's headquarters in Georgetown. And the woman who runs the place, her name was Sharon Amos. She had taken the orders very seriously. She and her 21-year-old daughter had slit the throats of her two younger children and then assisted each other in killing each other. And oh my gosh. Stephen Jones and Jim Jones Jr. found them in the bathroom and said there was blood pouring out from under the bathroom door. And Jim Stephen Jones says, I do not, I cannot talk about what I encountered that day. And they I cannot imagine. Can, can you imagine? It's doing like this story has so many different like arms of just unbelievable yeah disaster like like horror horror upon horror upon horror yeah i want to say also that this is where the phrase drinking the kool-aid comes from mm -hmm. right even though it was actually flavor aid i'm sure kool-aid is never going to recover from that branding mishap but i don't think that's funny anymore no after reading these books because i because most of my research for this was actually based on a the book called the road to jonestown which i've read twice and that's what the Jonestown Terror in the Jungle documentary is based on as well. But watching the docs, reading the books, I also read Debbie Layton's book. Mm -hmm. um, it's not funny. And mm -hmm. any survivors and people who lost people, we really need to stop. The, we need to stop saying drink the Kool-Aid. Like, I'm going to try really hard to stop saying it. Um, you know, there's people still in this day in 2023 that are suffering because they lost loved ones in Jonestown. There was one survivor. Her name's, I believe it's Leslie Wack. Leslie Wagner Wilson, I'm sorry if I've got your name wrong, Leslie, who lost, she is, she actually had left early that morning, went out into the jungle early that morning with a few other people and was like, I'm out of here. She just managed to escape before the craziness happened. Oh. And, but she lost her mom, her brother, her husband, her, her grandmother, like her whole, her sister, her whole family. Um, Vernon Gosney lost his son. He got shot and survived, but he lost his son. Um, there's just, there's still scores of people living 
in the United States that lost people. Uh, Grace Stone lost John Victor. John Victor was killed his by his caretaker, Maria Katsaris. Um, uh, yeah, it's terrible. And I just can't make that joke anymore. So no. um, not great. Not great. So all in all, there were nine, 918 people killed. That includes the congressmen and the people that were killed with the party on the airstrip and the people that were killed in the house at Georgetown. Um, 276 of them were children. Um, all, in my opinion, were murdered because they were under that mind control. Even people who took the poison willingly. Yeah. Um, and it remained, you know, before September 11th, 2001, it was the single, the greatest single loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act. And it's, it's just terrible. And it leaves a lasting legacy of pain. I hope that we, you know, I always want to know what we can learn from these things. Mm-hmm. We can learn that a, any kind of movement centered around one person who gives all the orders is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, we can learn the signs of being kept exhausted, busy, hungry, um, that that's going to lead to course of control. And, you know, Jim Jones hid for years and years and years behind freedom of religion. I agree that we definitely should have freedom of religion in the United States. But he was just able to um, get so many investigations and things squashed partially because of that. Because who are you to say how he runs his church? I mean, that's how the Church of Scientology gets gets away with so much forced labor that they have. Um, Don't come after me, Scientology, please. I don't have any money. Um, (laughs) but Jonestown was, I think a total shock to everyone back in the United States, even people, even people, um, who were still in the temple and in San Francisco, I think were shocked Mm -hmm. that it occurred so quickly because when you hear Jackie Spear, the Congresswoman talk about it, she says the night before it happened, Jonestown was a vibrant, happy community. Now who knows how much of it was for show, but it was vibrant. It wasn't showing any signs of being obliterated 12 hours later or 15 hours later. How many hours later it was? Less than 24 hours later. So I don't know. It's just, it's terribly, terribly tragic and and so evil, so evil that Jim Jones could just snuff out the lives that he could say, I can't live. What he was saying, he kept saying, we can't live the way we want, so we shouldn't live at all. So yeah. let's have charge over our deaths. But really he was saying, I can't live the way I want. I can't do the things I want anymore. I can't control all of you anymore. So you should just cease to exist. Yeah. I keep thinking about all the um, underserved and vulnerable people that he brought into this. Like the the foster children had no voice. No voice. They went where a bed was for them. And um, the like he built up an army essentially by preying on individuals who needed help and needed a voice, needed people to speak for them. And that's such a violation. And he did it under the name of a church. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so unbelievably painful. And I think we can learn about that. Like if something doesn't feel right in your gut, listen to that, you know, listen to 
be aware of red flags and be aware of just inconsistencies and self-serving. It's just horrific. When someone starts saying this behavior is okay for me, but not for literally anyone else. Exactly. Major red flag. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. He totally targeted the disenfranchised mm-hmm. people who were already maybe on the edges of society. <clears throat> and he took control of their lives and he, in every single way, and then he ended them when he chose to. Mm-hmm. It's just such terrible evil. And, if and you go back to like the beginning of his story with his, his dad having probably PTSD and then his parents' relationship being so volatile and his mom being busy all the time and he was let free to roam and do, you know, survive on his own. Like if, if we would have been able to intercede at that point, the whole trajectory of all these hundreds of people's lives and the people that were left to mourn them and grieve them could have been changed. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine Mm -hmm. what one thing could have altered the path of Jonestown. It's really is incredible that it is really is beyond belief that it happened. It still is beyond belief that it happened. Yeah. And on the day you were born, Becky. Right. So crazy. It's really bonkers. So, so crazy. So obviously the U.S. was in shock. Um, the Congressman Leo Ryan was the first congressman ever killed in the line of duty. And as far as I, far as I know, still the only. Um, forgive me if I'm wrong about that. Um, and the survivors that did come back to the U.S. were not treated very well at all, as you can imagine which is unfortunately because I consider them to be victims, but they had years and years of trauma to work through. It's amazing seeing on the documentary, Jim Jones Jr. and Stephen Jones seem to be normal functioning people and they're able to talk about the events and their perspective is extremely valuable. Neither, both of them thought, you know, they were, they didn't have any disillusions about who their dad was, I guess. Um, Jim Jones Jr. lost his wife at Jonestown. And he says, if he had been there, he probably just would have taken the boys in too. He's like, I'd get it. He's like, if I just saw my wife die, I would have done it too. Mm-hmm. So I think their perspective is valuable. And I'm going to put these docs in the show notes and I encourage, you know, more additional reading. There's also a couple of good podcast series about this. American Scandal has one. And the other one I believe is called Oversight. I'll link to those in show notes too, because I'm always wanting to learn more. And, um, there's just a ton to it as you can see from just these two episodes there's so much more i could have said um but we did it becky we made it yay we made it out of jonestown we did um but i will never forget those 918 people who oh but before i go i have to say jim jones shot himself he did not he didn't drink this the flavor he was he watched all those people die a death that he told them that was going to be quick and painless and then he decided he did not want to go that way because it didn't look quick and painless and the coward died of a gunshot wound to the head i don't know if he shot himself or maria katsaris shot him i can't remember i think it's one of the two and maria katsaris also shot herself Mm -hmm. so jim jones unbelievable i really hate that guy yeah all right thank you for being here with me and for enduring this with me and our listeners. Thanks for covering it. I learned a lot. Um, very interesting. Very sad. Yeah, it is. It sucks. But, but it's a valuable story. A valuable a- story that needs to be told. And those people need to be remembered because they were victims. And um, we need to watch out for maniacs like that and keep it from happening again. So, all right, disaster dreamers. Thanks for sticking in there with us. Next time we'll have a whole new subject. And I really appreciate you. 
If you have a second, please rate and review the podcast for me to help people find us. And don't forget to follow me at Disaster Queen Pod on Instagram. And I will see you here back here in two weeks. Bye, Becky. Thank you so much for being with me. Bye, Bye everybody. The Disaster Queen Podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.